Innsbruck in Austria. He was a Felix Posner Research Fellow at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He was a postdoc, uh, one of my students at Yale University when we were uh, running our center at Yale before we were unceremoniously closed. Uh, he was with us in 2008 and 2009. He's currently the director of a new international center, the Berlin Cent International Center for the Study of Antisemitism, which uh, Clemens Henny created about a year, year and a half ago. And they're doing uh, all sorts of publications out of there on antisemitism. Uh, Clemens is the author of What Right-Wing Extremism, The New Right and the Political Culture in Germany from 1970 to 2005. He wrote a book on German antisemitism, the Holocaust and the and post-Holocaust secondary antisemitism. And he also did work on Islamic studies and antisemitism in Germany after 9-11. His first book in English, Antisemitism, a Specific Phenomenon, uh, Holocaust Trivialization, Islamism, Post-Colonialism, and Cosmopolitan Antisemitism. That just about almost covers it all. It was uh, published recently in 2013. And his latest book is Critical Theory Post uh, Pro-Israel, with a question mark. Today, uh, Clemens will show the relationship between critical theory towards Zionism and the Jewish state of Israel, which he'll base his analysis mostly on, the, on German sources and the German context, um, which he analyzes the writings of the Zionist uh, founder of critical theory in 1937, Max Horkheimer, and fellow theorists like Ardarno, uh, Marcus, and Lowenthal. Um, and he, he, his question today is, what would uh, Ardarno have said about Judith Butler? Uh, Judith Butler, as we as uh, friends of his gap, uh, have come to know her well. Famously, the progressive, Jewish, proud, gay, lesbian, post-culturalist, progressive woman, scholar, professor famously wrote, among other things, that Hamas and Hezbollah should be perceived as the progressive left. And she actually denied this, uh, saying that her detractors, the Zionist detractors, were putting words in her mouth, but there's a film from Berkeley, California, at a teach-in, where she actually said it. So what she wrote, what was attributed to her, was actually her, and she's actually said it. Um, incredible. And as an aside to this, I don't know if Clemens is going to uh, speak of it, but there's a podcast in, her, in the London Book Review, uh, London Review of Books, and in uh, the British Museum. She spoke about Franz Kafka. I don't know if uh, Clemens will speak about this uh, issue, but you should read it. She's she's brilliant. She's a genius, but she is so driven uh, by hatred. It's astounding that she can take the whole issue of Kafka and the ownership of Kafka and use it as a, an opportunity in an extraordinarily creative brilliant way to just smash um, the Jewish state, the notion of Zionism, and uh, the inherent violence of uh, Jews who ascribe to believing that they have the right to self-determination. It's astounding, but brilliant. And I, I urge you to read it, to understand, and I'm choosing my words carefully, the mind of the enemy, because it's, it's formidable. This is not Norman Finkelstein, who's a thug in the need of uh, psychoanalysis. This is a, a a serious scholar, so important. So uh, I think Clemens' work on this will be interesting today. So uh, without further ado, I'm happy to welcome Clemens. And also we have a uh, the first respondent to Clemens' paper 
will be Leslie Lebel. Leslie is a friend of ISGAP I still. Uh, she's writing a paper for us, I'm saying it on the record, so that it will be coming out soon on radical Islam in the United States. And she's currently, um, she has her own uh, consulting company, Level Associates in Connecticut, and she's also a research scholar at Rachel Ironfeld Center on American, the American Center for Democracy. So she will be responding to Clemens. So Clemens, please uh, come to the podium. Thank you very much, Charles, uh, for this kind introduction. Um, when I um, thought about talking in New York City about the topic of Israel, and uh, for my generation, I first uh, thought about uh, one word, which maybe some of you have not heard before, some did. This is R-I-M-O-N-E-S, um, which is called Ramones, which is a punk rock band from this city, and uh, Joey Ramon uh, was a, as far as I know, I didn't meet him in person, he died before I came to know him, but um, he was a pro-Israel punk rocker, which is unusual, because I come from a, from a culture in Germany where it's very difficult if you are left-wing or liberal or anything with punk rock or so, or heavy metal, it's very difficult to be pro-Israel, particularly in a country like Germany. Uh, so um, the Ramones, at least parts of the Ramones, have been pro-Israel, and there's a new awakening, as far as I understood from what I have some colleagues and friends in New York, of a, of a pro-Zionist youth culture and street culture, uh, including groups like Artists for Israel, for example, or Punk Chew, this is a film project by someone from New York City, and other projects. Uh, so I just wanted to mention this because if I'm... <laughs> Uh, happy to speak in this city. I wanted to mention something with, uh, with punk rock and youth culture and, uh, and Israel. Uh, then, I would like to provide you with some information not really known by many uh, about the relationship between New York City and Israel and German Jewry. Okay? Um, a lot of German Jews came to this city fleeing Nazi Germany and uh, some of them uh, went back to Germany, like Horkheimer or Adorno, and others other kept a uh, relationship with the United States, like Hannah Arendt and others, although Hannah Arendt was not a critical theorist as such. Um, and I will give you, a, or try to give you, some inside view in um, German Jewish thinking and their relationship to Zionism and later to Israel. Um, so let me start with, because we are here in the building of the American Jewish Committee, it might be interesting for you, 1945. Um, in 1945, Max Horkheimer, who is the founder of critical theory, which is a kind of Marxist psychoanalytic school of philosophy, one of the leading schools of philosophy of the 20th century, um, and he dealt with uh, anti-Semitism in the early 1940s, even before, but particularly in the early and mid-1940s. And uh, he collaborated with the American Jewish Committee. And as early as November 1945, um, he was in private communications with other people, a little bit scared if he, as German Jew, as, as a leading theorist of critical theory at the time, and the American Jewish Committee, if they are too much pro-Zionist, at the time where the struggle was going on in Palestine, 
if this might come back as a boomerang and, and, and cause this anti-Semitism in New York and the United States. So he was, he was scared about too much pro-Israel activism at that time. Um, I will come back soon later uh, to, to another guy of the Frankfurt School which has an opposite view uh, of the relationship between Zionism and anti-Semitism and, and, and Judaism. Um, but let me, let me then go to, to April 1948, still uh, shortly before the creation of the State of Israel. There was uh, a former member of the Institute of Social Research, which was the Institute of, of Critical Theory, Erich Fromm. Um, and this Erich Fromm is, is a very famous uh, uh, psychologist of the 20th century. And uh, he had the idea of a binational homeland for the Jewish people and the Arab people. So he was against, he was really driven against the Jewish state of Israel at that time, April 1948. And he issued, or he organized uh, an advertisement in the New York Times, I think Sunday supplement in April 1948, um, urging the world leaders not to establish a Jewish state, but rather, or instead, um, a binational state. And this is obviously the very same ideology we know from today from people like Judith Butler uh, and a lot of other people uh, who oppose Israel as we know it. And I wanted to mention this Eric Fromm because he opposed the Jewish state even before it existed, actually, in April 1948. Um, at, at the same time, uh, even before the creation of the state of Israel, something like 1947 or early 1948, uh, I came across uh, of one of the most impressive pro-Zionist, pro-Israel statements by a Marxist left-wing German Jew. Uh, this is Leo Löwenthal. Uh, Leo Löwenthal um, was a famous philosopher of the 20th century, at least in Germany. Um, and uh, he, is, he has a 10-volume work, so he, you can learn, of le uh, learn uh, about uh, anti-Semitism of German history uh, and other aspects of intellectual history of the 20th century, uh, reading his, his work. And um, he remembered when he was interviewed in 1985, uh, he remembered what he was thinking in the mid-40s, or 47, uh, about Jews and violence uh, and Israel. And uh, he was saying, well, Jews have been excluded from power and violence and weaponry for centuries and even millennia. So uh, people think or thought that Jews are peaceful people. They are not allowed to, to, be, to have weapons. They are, they, are, uh, they are kind people. They will not, not do bad things. They, just, uh, they are the victim or, or they do not bad things. And he said, well, I don't think Jews have to be the victim all the time. They can be perpetrators as well. If, uh, they can have a state, they, they can do violence. Why not? I mean, why should be there a double standard in terms of Israel? And this was the discussion he had, and this is actually, as far as I know, um, an open question for research. And there might be some files in this building if this is the headquarters of the American Jewish Committee, because he referred to discussions in the American Jewish Committee at the time, 1947, early 1948, if they want to deliver weaponry to Jews in Palestine, to do attacks against the British at the time. And he was strongly in favor of 
providing weapons to the Jews in Palestine, and the American Jewish Committee, or Max Wokham, they opposed this. Uh, Arthur Leventhal, in his um, kind of remembering these events in 1985, thought that this was also the position of Horkheimer, Adorno, and the other members of critical theory. I'm not sure if this was the fact, because we know of this of letters from Horkheimer in 1945 uh, that he was rather scared uh, about pro-Zionist activism of a critical theory. But uh, I think we, we should keep in mind this uh, really impressive statement by, by Leo Leventhal, uh, because this is showing that uh, a, a Marxist or left-wing view can be, of course, very much pro-Zionist, pro-Israel. Um, in 1956, uh, in New York City, the Leo Berg Institute was founded. This is uh, among the most famous institutions on Jewish history, uh, on, uh, on Holocaust uh, remembrance, on research uh, in Holocaust studies and Jewish studies. Uh, it was funded by Hannah Arendt or Albert Einstein uh, and Robert Welch or Gershom Scholem, among others, mostly German Jews, if not exclusively. And um, I mention this because it's a really famous institution, the, the Leo Berg Institute, um, and they have a yearbook, which is the Leo Berg Institute yearbook, and uh, I came across an article uh, which was published a couple of years ago in 2006 um, about a typical mainstream German professor in uh, Jewish studies or in religious studies, uh, Christian Wiese. And um, he wrote about um, B-nationalism, that means the opposition against Israel as a Jewish state, um, and uh, in his article, there are a lot of things we should analyze um, very critically, but I will just uh, mention two things. Uh, this is his positive uh, reference to Judith Butler, and uh, even worse to someone like uh, Jacqueline Rose from the United Kingdom. Uh, and I mentioned this <laughs> a couple of years ago when I talked in, in London on that topic, and I hope it's not too boring for some of the people who, who attended my lecture then, but, uh, but I will repeat this because it's just a, a, a strange story uh, which is showing the ridiculous level of scholarship of some people and we are not talking about people like Finkelstein. We are talking about really smart people usually uh, who have full professorship in Germany and other countries. And this Mr. Wiese, Professor Wiese, he quoted a book by Jacqueline Rose uh, which is also in favor of a binational state or whatever state, definitely not a Jewish uh, state. And uh, in this book, uh, The Question of Sign from uh, 2005, uh, Jacqueline Rose uh, is writing the following. Uh, I mean, her intention is to show that Zionism and Nazism have the same roots. And she found, uh, because he's a real genius, she found uh, a source why there is a very close connection between Zionism and Nazism. And this happened in 1895. There was a concert of Wagner music in the city of Paris, and according to her, perhaps both Hitler and Theodor Herzl attended this concert. <laughs> and now, I mean, Adolf Hitler was born in April 1889, as, as we all know. And he was never in Paris until 1940 with the German Wehrmacht. Uh, so I don't know uh, what kind of school Jacqueline Rose attended in London or where, which city ever she was. 
uh, in school, high school, or pro uh, primary school, whatever. I mean, even in England, I assume people know if Hitler was born in 1889 because they know this because um, uh, several f uh, another famous. Uh, not another, but a famous uh, English historian, also an anti-Semite, um, was also born uh, in, in that uh, month, in April 89. So, uh, I mention this because this Professor Wiese is quoting exactly that chapter of Jacqueline Rose, where this really strange, absurd, or whatever we call it, story with Hitler and Herzl uh, took place in uh, 1895. Um, and I'm wondering about the scholarly uh, level or niveau, uh, as we say in French, um, of the Leo Beck Institute yearbook. Uh, if they publish articles that refer in, in the scholarly papers uh, uh, on books uh, that uh, promote that kind of really strange stories. And it's not just because this story is so ridiculous. We all understand it's ridiculous to say that Hitler perhaps met uh, Hertz without knowing him uh, during a concert in 1895. But it's even worse because she's using this as a tool to denounce Zionism as just another form of Nazism. Um, the next example, which is also a relation between New York City, uh, Zionism, and Nazism, took place in 1958. Uh, it was before I was born, so I didn't attend that lecture of Martin Buber. He's a very famous philosopher of, philosoph of religion of the 20th century, perhaps some of you know him. Um, he was an Israeli also. He, he, he left for Palestine in 1938. Um, but he was also someone who followed the binational idea. It means he opposed Israel as a Jewish state. He wanted Israel as a binational state of Arabs, Palestinians, and the Jews. And in April 1958, he gave a talk in New York City. And in that talk, which was not, not exclusively about Israel, but um, he mentioned Israel um, at some point and compared Israelis to Nazis, saying one of the worst effects of German Nazism was that even some of its victims uh, kind of embraced some parts of Nazi ideology. Uh, that means like racism, for example, or superiority, whatever you call it. Uh, uh, obviously aiming at the treatment of Arabs in Israel. And uh, we're talking about 1958. So we're not talking about uh, the West Bank or so. Um, if we talk about a critical theory, most people in the United States, I assume, think uh, there's no question they are anti-Israel because typical leftists, Marxists, whatever, are of course anti-Zionist, as we know, uh, from, uh, from uh, reading their books and articles online and offline, or attending their lectures. Um, and I was usually thinking that critical theory, of course, can be pro-Israel, because I knew some of their writings, which were definitely pro-Israel, but then, uh, last year, uh, late in last year, uh, I started dealing with Horkheimer, Adorno, and other members of critical theory a little bit more closely, uh, reading their sources, mostly in German language, so they are not very well known outside Germany, not even in Germany they are known actually, because Zionism is not a topic for many scholars. And with very few pro-Israel scholars in Germany, there are very few pro-Israel scholars, um, they just think, well, we all think critical theory is pro-Israel. We don't have to deal anymore with their sources. 
Um, you can find, and we have to be honest with this, um, you can find statements by Max Horkheimer, who was the leading theorist of Gödel theory until the early 60s when Adorno became much more famous because Horkheimer was something like eight years older and he retired and went to Switzerland and Adorno became uh, the leading figure in the 60s of Gödel theory. But um, Horkheimer in his late work in the 60s, mostly written uh, in the Switzerland, um, he had some kind of statements which remind me and maybe some of you uh, to um, to rather anti-Zionist scholars, including Judith Butler. Um, for example, uh, in several of his, of his pieces, some of them have been published uh, or, or given in talks, some of these pieces are just private uh, remarks uh, which have been published uh, after he died. Um, he was saying there is maybe not a really close relationship between Zionism and Judaism. Maybe there is rather an opposition between the both of them, uh, which is in today's years, of course, resembling uh, the, the anti-Zionist activism we heard, in, we heard in the last 10 years or even more. But he was thinking so in, in the early or mid-1960s. But it's much more important um, to look at the statements which also exist, uh, who are very much pro-Israel. For example, uh, when uh, there was uh, Egypt President Nasser in the 50s, uh, in the 60s, uh, who was a really a real threat to the very existence of the Jewish state. Uh, Horkheimer, uh, from the very beginning, in the mid-50s, was well aware uh, of, of the Nassau and Egypt threat uh, and said, well, why is always the Jews who are, who are the scapegoat even in the Middle East? So he couldn't understand this uh, and even compared Nassau to Hitler because both had as one of their main features as their ideology anti-Semitism and hatred of the Jews. Um, the same holds uh, on, a, on another level for Adorno. Adorno was definitely not a Zionist. He was not so much interested in Judaism. I mean, Adorno had a Jewish father. Uh, Horkheimer was raised in a, in, a, in a real traditional Jewish home. Horkheimer was not raised in a traditional Jewish home. Uh, but Adorno was also scared, at least in the late 60s, about anti-Semitism. Uh, for example, in a, and I think I'm probably perhaps one of the one of the first scholars who who just discovered this. It's, it's not difficult to discover because it's in, in published work. But however, as I mentioned, Zionism is not a topic many people are interested in dealing with. So I found it that uh, he wrote uh, a birthday note for one of the most famous Israeli and also German Jewish uh, philosophers, Gershom Scholem, who, uh, who lived from the late 19th century until 1982. Um, and uh, in this birthday address uh, to Sholem, uh, which uh, was in uh, December 1967, so several months after the Six-Day War, um, Adorno was very scared about the threat of destruction of the Jewish people, again, the destruction of the Jewish people. Uh, so we can clearly see, also despite the fact that he was not the kind of guy who was going to pro-Israel rallies in June or July 1967, there had been a few pro-Israel rallies uh, by Jewish students and non-Jewish students in Germany at the time. He was not uh, the kind of guy who was joining these kind of rallies. I mean, if you know a little bit about Adorno, he, he was never the kind of guy who is doing uh, even propaganda in a good sense, because for him, propaganda 
which is not a German word propaganda, which is the English word propaganda, in my view. However, it means public speaking was not his way of doing um, uh, advocacy or whatever. But uh, his kind of scholarship was definitely a pro-Jewish advocacy. Uh, I mean, he was uh, one of the leading scholars who dealt with anti-Semitism after the Holocaust in Germany. For example, he invented, alongside with his co-worker Peter Schönbach, uh, the term secondary anti-Semitism, uh, which is a form of anti-Semitism despite, uh, not despite, after and because of Auschwitz. That means anti-Semitism, particularly in Germany, I think we can also find uh, in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, uh, in other countries, uh, particularly in Germany, that means people who blame the Jews for what happened in Auschwitz. You know? Um, we call it today Holocaust distortion, Holocaust obfuscation. Today we even have Holocaust celebration, uh, uh, like from people like Joseph Al Karadawi or Egypt uh, TV uh, man. So uh, Adorno was well aware in the late 50s, early 60s, um, about German anti-Semitism after the Holocaust. Uh, and as I mentioned, he was also well aware of the anti-Zionist threat. Uh, towards Israel, despite the fact he, he died uh, uh, quite young in the age of 65 uh, in 1969, so he was not able to really deal uh, with the new anti-Semitism which uh, started uh, at the latest uh, in mid-1967. Uh, we also have, and Charles mentioned him, Herbert Marcuse, um, probably the best known critical theorist in the United States because he was very active in the 60s and 70s uh, against uh, the war in Vietnam and uh, he was a, uh, what, what, what today would be called a, a real radical uh, in the United States um, fighting the capitalist system and all these things. But it's interesting that even Marcuse had a very strong pro-Israel stand. Um, and this is interesting I mean, I just came across this a couple of years ago um, because now it's known in Germany a couple of years ago some people did a book on, uh, on the late work of Marcuse and they included, uh, for example, the translation, the German translation of an interview uh, Marcuse gave in something like 1977 to a California Jewish student paper uh, where he was asked if he's a Zionist and he said, well, I'm not religious at all, but of course the Jews need an own state. That is for sure, and he will do everything to prevent the Second Holocaust, and therefore he fights for a Jewish state. Um, I mean, there have been, of course, some contradictions, because still, 1977, uh, he was still thinking about the World Revolution, the World Socialist Revolution, of course. Um, and if that World Socialist Revolution would take place, there would be no more anti-Semitism and no more need for a Jewish state. Uh, and this is also, interestingly, I, I just want to mention this in parenthesis. Uh, for example, the position of um, of, a, of a good scholar from Austria, Stefan Kriegert, uh, he's doing work with the Stop the Bomb campaign. Um, that means he's doing, doing very good work uh, against the Iranian threat, against Islamist anti-Semitism from Iran. But there's one dark side, I think, in his communist view of, of Zionism, uh, because he's saying Zionism is okay, doesn't exist, because Israel is okay, but it is the, it's not really the, good, the, the real answer to anti-Semitism. The real answer to anti-Semitism is communism, uh, but as we know, it's not realistic that in two or three years we have a communist revolution, take maybe some longer, um, and during that time frame it's okay that Israel uh, still uh, exists. 
I mean, this sounds strange for an American audience, I'm sure, um, but in Germany, you won't find too many people who are not on the left uh, who are really pro-Israel. So these are, these are the guys we deal with, uh, and uh, I myself, from the liberal or, or, or left wing in Germany, we are the only guys who are pro-Israel activists on the street. We have a few Christian activists uh, and a few more other people, uh, and among the scholars, um, I mean, most scholars in Germany, like at Yale or Harvard, are left of center liberals, and of course not really Zionists. Uh, so it's it's difficult for people uh, who who are following critical theory and who are for what reason ever um, following their 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 theory about capitalism or about cultural industry and so on. Uh, and to be Zionist on the same time. This, because uh, you find a lot of people like Moshe Zuckerman, who is uh, in Germany, he's well-known Israeli sociologist, uh, uh, he's also a follower of Adorno, and, uh, and Moshe Zuckerman is of course saying, well, I know why Adorno is not well-viewed in Israel, because he was not a Zionist. So people like Moshe Zuckerman, uh, they are rejecting all indications we have in paper, and Zuckerman is able to read German. Um, so we have indications that Adorno was of course pro-Israel, but people like Zuckerman uh, neglect this and they want to say uh, critical theory by definition is not Zionist. They are rather embracing exile or the wandering of the Jews. This is the same position like Judith Butler. I mean Judith Butler or people like Amnon Raskar-Krotzkin who is uh, in Germany, very well-known, very established Israeli scholar in Israel. He's a no-name, although he's a professor, but he's a no-name in Israel. But he's a very well-respected person in Germany. He was a fellow at the Wissenschaftskolleg to Berlin. This is like uh, like the Princeton uh, Center for Advanced Studies in Germany. Very famous, very well-established uh, center. And this Amnon Ras Krakowskin was a fellow there. Uh, and he's a follower of the B-national ideology, so he wants to destroy Israel as a Jewish state and wants to have um, a B-national state. And uh, Charles mentioned something earlier today which was very interesting, that Judith Butler is not a fool, uh, that he has to be taken seriously. Uh, this is at least in part true. Um, I mean, as I know some, some sources in German about critical theory, I know that she is not too smart actually, she, I mean, she's not really reading the things she could have read if she wanted to. Um, for example, if she deals with Walter Benjamin or with Gershom Scholem, uh, she's, maybe she has, she has read one or two articles from, from one of them, but if she really dealt with private conversations and you have volumes of letters between Scholem and Benjamin, uh, who, are, who are heroes for leftists until today for several reasons. And uh, Sholem definitely is one of the most fascinating Zionist scholar I know. And Benjamin is also a fascinating, uh, was a fascinating uh, philosopher. Uh, but Judith Butler is using Benjamin in particular um, as a tool to fight Zionist uh, Gershom Sholem, who was the closest friend and ally of uh, Walter Benjamin. Um, so the abuse of, of scholars, and maybe Kafka, uh, because uh, Charles Moore mentioned Kafka and uh, the way Judith Butler deals with Kafka, so maybe that's the same story with, uh, with her treatment uh, of Kafka, because I know her treatment of, of, of Walter Benjamin is at least uh, suspicious, because she's just using him as, as long as he can be used as a tool to fight uh, his Zionist friend Gershom Sholem. And Gershom Scholem, I just wanted to mention this because it is important. Um, 
he was, as a young man, um, he made Aliyah in 1923, uh, age 25, 26, uh, and Gershom Sholem was uh, associated with the British Shalom group, the group who was fighting for a B-national home for Jews and Arabs between 1925 and 1933. Uh, I mean, they were, as most of you know, excluded from the Zionist organization in 1931, um, and they had never really influence. But they were very influential, the British Shalom group, uh, among German Jews. I mean, some of the German Jews uh, who were uh, the leading German Jews at the time uh, when it comes to Zionism and what we call cultural Zionism instead of political Zionism. And uh, Gershom Scholem was associated with them. So uh, honestly, I must tell you that I always thought until recently uh, that Scholem might be interesting philosopher or fascinating, but not really very much Zionist. I thought until recently. But uh, then I started, and that might be a difference to people like to the Butler, I really started reading things uh, and sources, books and articles. And, and Sholem has written really a lot of things. Uh, also a lot of letters. I mean, I, I just can uh, make a, a, advise you, if you really want to understand intellectual life of German Jews and Israel of the 20th century, uh, you should read Gershom Sholem. This is absolutely fascinating. Uh, you learn most things about Hannah Arendt, uh, about the Jewish rejectionism of Israel as early as 1945-46. Uh, he was the leading guy who was fighting this Jewish anti-Semitism at the time, anti-Zionism, by Hannah Arendt. Um, and I came across, for example, um, a remembrance of uh, of Amy Mr. Tiedemann, uh, who is the, the editor of the Collected Works of Adorno, and Mr. Tiedemann was a close friend of Scholem, and uh, they were together in 1972, uh, Munich, uh, when Munich happened, the attack on the Israeli team at the Olympic Games. And uh, at the very evening, when the hijacking was taking place, uh, Scholem was in Frankfurt in a hotel, and he was absolutely outraged uh, about this uh, anti-Semitic action. Um, and this is someone many people in Germany who dealt with Scholem always neglected or ignored because they are not really dealt with the sources, they are not really dealt with, with, the, with the change uh, of Gershom Scholem from a what we call cultural Zionist in the mid-twenties fighting for a P-national home but then realizing well the Arabs are not really interested as early as 1929, 1936, 1947 uh, they rejected plans for, uh, for collaboration uh, for what what Julie Butler calls cohabitation, uh, cohabitation, uh, living together. Uh, so Shonem is perhaps the best source to understand the failure of the entire ideology of Julie Butler, Amnon Raskakotskin, uh, or Sheila Ben Habib from Yale, and all these people who are promoting something else but a Jewish state. Because Shonem himself was an opponent of a Jewish state, but he understood because contrary. Uh, to people like Judy Butler, who never uh, lived in the 20s or 30s in, in Israel, Palestine. He lived at the time, uh, and he was in favor of a binational home. He understood the Arabs don't like Jews at all. Uh, and, and we are talking about uh, the Arabs uh, before Islamism because it became a really leading force. We are talking about particularly Arab anti-Semitism, right, uh, in the time, the 20s and 1930s. Uh, later it became much more Islamized, particularly in the late 1960s and 
not to forget uh, 9-11 or the Second Intifada when Islam became a much, much more important source uh, for the rejectionism of uh, Jews and science in uh, the Middle East. But Sholem is, is really a good source, and so uh, I mentioned him last time, uh, to understand uh, that the complete failure of left-wingers who are still promoting the binational idea, uh, they just should read or understand uh, someone like Sholem, who, who was a binational ideologist and who became a realist and a real uh, Zionist uh, fighter until the end of his life. Um, one reason why many people, of course, associate critical theory with anti-Zionism was the fact that Judith Butler was awarded the Adorno Prize uh, two years ago uh, in 2012. Uh, I was, of course, upset about this decision. Um, I know some people like Leah Leibowitz were not upset because some people say, well, maybe there is a kind of connection. Judith Butler is writing in a, in a kind of ephemeral speech, in a kind of really strange post-structuralist language, which is never really dealing with reality, and maybe there's a connection to the sometimes opaque or not really understandable language or philosophy uh, of uh, Adorno. Um, I think um, there is not really a connection between post-structuralism and critical theory. I mean, Marxism is the most most direct uh, connection between Adorno and critical theory, while Judith Butler has not really an idea um, about, about Marxism or uh, or socialism, uh, the way Adorno or Horkheimer dealt with in the 20s, 30s, and, uh, and later in the 50s and 60s. Um, but still, there is one kind of truth in it, that Judith Butler uh, was awarded this prize, because we cannot neglect the fact that people in the committee of the Adorno Prize in the city of Frankfurt in Germany, like Axel Honneth, obviously are followers of Horkheimer and Adorno, in some, some, some sense. Uh, Axel Honneth is a philosopher, a professor in Frankfurt, and uh, he is the head of the Institute for Social Research there, uh, so he was part of the committee that awarded Judith Butler that prize. Uh, so we cannot uh, neglect the fact that there is this connection. But it comes even worse, and, uh, and uh, maybe this uh, could be uh, one of my uh, uh, last remarks about uh, the city of New York. Um, in 2009, in October 2009, there was a big event in New York City um, with Charles Taylor, Cornel West, uh, two philosophers, um, and Jürgen Habermas, who is the leading German intellectual and uh, former head uh, of, the, of the critical theory of Frankfurt School, um, or still considered as head, but he's no longer active professor. Uh, and the fourth participant at the event was Judy Butler. So you have Jürgen Habermas as the leading German intellectual, he's considered as such, uh, and he's uh, the, the founder of Frankfurt School. Frankfurt School is not the same as critical theory, but uh, of course he was a student of Adorno and Horkheimer, so uh, there's a close connection between the both of them, or the three of them. So Jürgen Habermas uh, discussed Judith Butler, and he was not at all um, analyzing the anti-Zionism and the B-national ideology, or even some anti-Sholem remarks by Judith Butler at the time uh, in October uh, 2009 in New York City. And this was not, um, I mean, a, a small event. I mean, there were 1,000 people attending. Um, it was such an important event for, for the anti-Zionist camp that this book was, uh, 
the, 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 the lectures were uh, transcripted and there was a book in English and then uh, the leading German publishing house, at least for a critical theorist, Surkamp, published a German edition of the very same event and the very same article by Judith Butler, um, Is Zionism Judaism, uh, in various forms, has been published let's say six, six, seven times. The last time this article in an extended version has been published this year by a leading Italian philosopher Gianni Vattimo, uh, 2014. Uh, you find a book, which is a really nasty book, actually, uh, called Deconstructing Zionism uh, in English. I mean, uh, if you want to know what Italian philosophers today think about Israel, that, it might, that might be a book. Because Gianni Vattimo it, it might, might be a no-name for many of you, but he's not a no-name in Europe. Uh, and he, he is a leading Italian philosopher. And in this book, um, they, which is dedicated to Jacques Derrida, so you have connection between the leading French philosopher, it's even one of the leading philosophers of our time, uh, Jacques Derrida, uh, a good friend of Jürgen Habermas. So you have really the leading philosophers um, all of them European, uh, Habermas, Derrida, and Matimo, uh, who are embracing the leading anti-Zionist American uh, activist Judith Butler. And none of them is able to deconstruct her anti-Semitism. Uh, I mean, Matimo is embracing her, and Habermas is unable. And this is a tragedy, I think. Uh, this is a real tragedy, a German tragedy, uh, because Habermas uh, is, of course, known as a critic of anti-Semitism in Germany. Uh, and I mentioned this in my book, uh, uh, Critical Theory and Israel, in, in German, and perhaps next year in English, uh, that Habermas was of course aware of the traditional German anti-Semitism, like uh, for famous writer Ernst Jünger, for example, um, and he opposed the traditional German anti-Semitism and, and anti-Judaism uh, as early as the 1960s. But I think that the, 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 the tragic is, the tragical emphi um, emphasis uh, lies in the fact that Habermas was unable to criticize a Jew like Judith Butler. I assume Habermas thinks if a Jew is criticizing Israel or Zionism, that might be a very interesting debate. It has nothing at all to do uh, with denouncing Jews or, uh, or, or fighting uh, Judaism or anti-Semitism uh, or Judaism uh, uh, in the form of Zionism. That means he is unable to make a connection between anti-Zionism um, and being Jewish. So, uh, and, and probably, or perhaps, or maybe, Judith Butler is aware of the fact that Habermas and this kind of people uh, who fought all these struggles against the hardcore right-wing or neo-Nazi people in Europe, that they are unable to, to, to fight Jewish anti-Zionism. I mean, probably Judith Butler knows this. She knows Habermas, I mean, he's an old man also, um, uh, would never ever come out with fighting someone like Judith Butler. But it also came, and this is even from a philosophical point of view, I think, um, an important point, and I wanted to close my, my, my short uh, lecture here, uh, to another German philosopher, Immanuel Kant, um, who lived in the 18th century. And uh, the most important remark in terms of Israel might be implicitly in the philosophy of Kant, which is today received as a transnational ideology or idea. Transnational means, uh, and this is the leading uh, idea of, of the European Union and of all scholars left of center all over the world from Japan to California.
they, they think that if you want to live together with other people, you cannot have borders. Uh, it is, uh, is anti-human, it is not really uh, a freedom if you have borders, um, like, like Israel has borders to its neighbors, uh, you have to become a more open society like the European Union. We have no real borders inside the European Union, and that is the model. And they, some of them, or most of them, refer to Immanuel Kant uh, with his uh, world citizenship and uh, the very tender idea uh, that everyone is everywhere welcome at every time daylight or night, it doesn't, doesn't matter, uh, and ignoring reality. I mean, someone like Yashem Scholem might have uh, told them that sounds nice, but if you ignore, for example, Arab or Muslim uh, true hatred, I mean, that's just suicide. If you open, it, open, open your borders and say, welcome, welcome all these uh, 300 million Arabs, come on, uh, we, we have a party in Tel Aviv, I mean, you can make suicide easy way. Um, and uh, maybe these people won't understand. They say the European Union is the model for the world. Uh, we want the entire world to become like Europe, um, an entity without borders, and we just have to follow Immanuel Kant, and there won't be any kind of discrimination, and so on. I mean, that is ignoring reality, I would say, uh, but it's important to understand that those people, including Judy Butler, uh, or Sheila Ben Habig, professor of political science at Yale, uh, they really believe they have the truth. They really believe they understood German philosophy and they want to redeem the entire world based on German philosophy. And I think um, that is not a good path to do. Thank you. So my name is Leslie Level, and I was asked to be the discussant for this topic. I should, um, in the interest of, of revealing everything, explain that Clemens gave me a copy of his manuscript, which I have read, with great interest, because my background, I'm a former Foreign Service Officer in the State Department, so I tend to have a very, I consider a very practical view, and so I was very attracted what Clemens had to say, because I look, for example, turning to the U.S., I look at U.S. policy currently towards the state of Israel. You know, I turn on the TV at night, I listen to our Secretary of State, and I have to say to myself, I really don't understand the intellectual basis of what he's saying. It just doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. And I found this very interesting because it provides some insight into the intellectual justification for having a Secretary of State basically say to Israelis, well, you know, if you don't shape up, act right, and behave yourselves, you could get struck with a whole bunch of sanctions and boycotts, which happened just a couple weeks ago. And as an American, I say to myself, excuse me, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with that, but Clemens provides some very interesting insight because Judith Butler is well known and is very respected and is very prominent. So what she says and what is accepted by other prominent intellectuals is very important. And what I found particularly interesting in reading his book, kind of two categories of criticism which I think others would be 
I, I would welcome if other people pursued it as well. One, this question of um, quoting people. If you're looking for uh, somebody's view on something, it's very refreshing to have somebody go and examine the original sources. Because what Clemens discovered was that they had a range of views. It wasn't all either pro or anti or whatever. A lot of it, of course, responded to specific circumstances that pertain to the time that don't pertain now, which is, by the way, normal. You would expect an intellectual to respond to what's going on instead of simply remaining in his, his line of theory. And that brings me to my second point. I think it's appalling how statements made by prominent people that clearly referred to specific times and places are being manipulated and distorted to make an argument today. I can't say I'm surprised. This has happened before in, in the history of humankind. But I think it is, it's particularly striking here to have people talk about a binational state and quote statements made by people who thought it was a good idea until they realized it was never going to happen, at which point they changed their views. And then 50 years later, they're being cited as being, uh, but of course what I'm saying is nothing because this prominent person <coughs> said this in 1938 or 45. That's really kind of thin, very thin gruel, and I wish more people than simply Clemens would attack it because I think looking at the intellectual base of this is important if you then step back and you say, well, what informs U.S. policy or European policy towards Israel? There are, of course, a lot of factors, but this one struck me as being particularly worthy of closer examination. So I don't know if that has caused anybody to have questions or or if there's anything else I can say, but I'd like to open it up now, and maybe Clemens can come back himself. Thank you. Yeah. Don't you want to stay So I have a, I have a personally fascinating presentation, Clarence, extremely, extremely valuable. The question I have uh, is, during the 1970s you have a big debate on the European left about revolutionary violence, and you actually have a lot of the post-68 generation getting involved with groups like the RAF and the Red Brigades in Italy and so forth. And you have one particular <laughs> incident in 1976 with the hijacking of the Air France plane taken to Uganda and there you have a group of German leftists who've come out of German universities and they're actually physically separating Jewish from non-Jewish passengers. So I have two questions. One, did any of the thinkers that you've mentioned, what did they have to say about this particular incident? And two, how do you get from critical theory, concrete magazine, this whole left milieu, how do you get from there to separating Jewish and non-Jewish passengers that you've hijacked? <coughs> I, I repeat the question, yeah. So, for the television. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, so Ben Cohen uh, asking uh, two questions. First, uh, if one of the theorists I mentioned did deal with, with Entebbe, with the Entebbe case in 1976, the hijacking uh, of an aircraft and the separation of Jews by not uh, Jews. And the second question, 
uh, is if German left-wing uh, circles and journals like Concrete, which is a journal in Germany, a left-wing journal, um, if they know or understand uh, what kind of Jewish and non-Jewish uh, people they attract uh, with, with their kind of ideas, right? Yeah, basically. Or basically. Yeah, I just how we get from like critical theory and Marxism, which is basically cosmopolitan, to this kind of this act of barbarism, but it's coming an act of barbarism committed by people who've been in this milieu, and that's what I find both disturbing and fascinating. Okay, so 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 how come people based on cosmopolitanism to barbarian barbarianism or anti-Semitism and yeah. um, that kind of? I mean, number one to enter the. Uh, is a very good, very very good thing because the Entebbe case actually was one of the first things uh, I dealt with in more detail with a group of uh, of other students at a time in uh, some 14 years ago. We made a brochure and we read the newspapers at the time, including Concrete actually <laughs> in 1976. So I, I we went to the to the archives. Uh, and there was fascinating what kind of anti-Israel sentiment at, time, at the time we found in all these journals. So they were comparing the Israeli army to all kind of, of, of Nazi or imperialist or American atrocities. Um, I, I, I mean, Horkheimer and Adorno both were dead at the time. Um, I don't know of any mentioning of Leo Löwenthal, for example, because Löwenthal um, was not involved in German politics uh, at that time. He was interviewed um, in 1985 about his life, which is really a fascinating interview, but um, I, I, I don't remember any mentioning of Entebbe. Marcuse, I mean, obviously was very active at the time. I think that what maybe the, the reason of this interview, which I, if I remember well, was in 1977 with these young guys, people in California interviewing Marcuse in 1977. I think they had Entebbe in mind, but I'm not sure, and I think there was no mentioning of it. So, uh, and um, who else? Erich Fromm did not uh, deal Habermas. with it. Habermas did not deal with Entebbe, as far as I know. I mean, Entebbe is, is definitely a turning point <coughs> for many German Jews, like Henrik Brodo. Henrik Brodo is the most famous German Jewish journalist at the time, uh, today. Um, he was shocked, uh, and we call him the small group uh, I worked with uh, this 14 years ago, we recorded uh, broader because he was definitely shocked in 1976 that the very, and this is maybe also kind of answer to your second question with cosmopolitanism, because Henry Broder, who is a, real, a truly fascinating journalist, uh, and he wrote one of the best books ever in German language on anti-Semitism, um, The Eternal Anti-Semite in German in 1986. Uh, uh, um, so Broder was uh, part of the typical left-wing liberal scene in the late 60s, early 70s. And he was absolutely outraged and shocked uh, seeing many of his friends, most of them non-Jewish, uh, being fascinated or at least indifferent to this anti-Semitic separation of Jews and non-Jews in 1976. But uh, typical critical theorists, as far as I understand, were not really shocked. I mean, at that time, even those who were following Horkheim and Adorno, maybe they ignored it. They said, well, that's typical Western propaganda, that this is really a uh, an atrocity. They said, well, that's such a hijacking of an aircraft, and we understand why they did it, and it's okay, more or less. Uh, and just a really few people were, at the time, in Germany, really shocked about the anti-Semitic impact of it. Um, so, and this is also including um, critical theorists. I, I forgot, and perhaps I can just mention this in two sentences now. One, uh, the leading, uh, the Erich Fromm guy, who is the man who 
uh, was close to Horkheimer in the 30s, uh, and he was doing this advertisement in the New York Times supplement on a Sunday edition in 1948 in April, uh, he really became a pretty aggressive anti-Zionist, at least in his unpublished letters to friends in the 70s. And, and there might be something um, uh, one can find about Entebbe also, which is might be downplaying or so, but uh, there is not a good relationship between critical theory of Erich Fromm um, and uh, realization of anti-Semitism or cosmopolitanism and anti-Zionism at that time, I think. If I may be permitted to say some things about the about so-called critical theory. I was a student of Leo Lowenthal, and during the last 20 years of his life, a good friend. Spent much time discussing these matters with him. I think that, I, I, as I try to understand, does it, I, let me pose a question. Why does it matter that some people who claim to be the heirs of of the Frankfurt School, which, by the way, Leventhal always denied existed. Why does it matter that some of them decided to give an award to Judith Butler? In what respect does it matter? So, what I want to say is something by way of background about these people, which, which I did not hear in your talk. Critical theory is not a theory. It is a field of thought. It is, a, it is, and I say this not uh, harshly, it is an atmosphere. It emerges in the 1920s and 1930s among a very uh, small, quite brilliant group of German Jewish intellectuals who have the money to pursue their intellectual pursuits outside the standard channels of the universities. And the problem that vexes them is the same problem that vexes any intelligent Marxist after the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, namely, what happened to the Marxist idea about the revolution of, on the part of the proletariat? And as the 30s deepen, as they acquire, for obvious reasons, a more and more intense uh, a revulsion from not only from the development of national socialism but from the incapacity of the left to fight it. They develop their field of thought around questions like why is there no longer a vital and promising political opposition to capitalism? And they have a whole range of ideas about that. There is no single theory inside it. They became interested in a series of subjects like culture, psychology, and uh, uh, and they thought, and they thought, and they thought, and they thought. They never developed a theory. Um, now, critical theory, I've, I've learned very much from it. Uh, anybody, I think, who's, who is looking for an alternative to Bolshevism and vulgar Marxism as uh, uh, some sort of left-wing uh, foundation. Um, needless to say, they developed a whole range of views on a whole range of questions. They didn't just disagree about Zionism. They disagreed about the nature of the United States. They disagreed about the Cold War. 
They disagreed about the nature of the proletariat. They disagreed about the Third War. In fact, I would dare say they disagreed on a great deal more than they agreed upon. Now, I don't know anything about the politics of who runs the remnants of the Institute in Frankfurt or why that group gave their award to Judith Butler. Um, I, having also some acquaintance with Jürgen Habermas, who I think I last saw at a conference in Tel Aviv, I can tell you I, I would be absolutely flabbergasted to know that the reason he did not address Judith Butler's absurd statements about Zionism is that he didn't think it was the occasion to do so, but not because he had, would have the slightest sympathy with her line of argument. There could not be, as I understand them, they're both difficult to read, although I find Habermas far more lucid, could not be two intellectuals in the world who are more uh, at odds in their general approach to the world. Habermas is, a, is a, a, an astute and complete rationalist. Uh, so you have concrete questions? Rationalist. No, do you have a concrete question? Or no, I don't. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to fill in a background, which I think your presentation uh, eludes, because I think you take Judith Butler too seriously. I think you take her as having something to do with critical theory vastly too prominently. And I think you've given us a sort of a diagram of anti-Zionist intellectuals, which distorts the nature of their work and thought. Just one more thing, if I may. And again, you'll forgive me, I hope, for making a statement. I think what you said is actually very important about how people change their minds. These, these, were, these were old men. I mean, when I first met these men, it was in the 60s and 70s. They were in their 60s and 70s. Leo Lowenthal fought in World War I as a German soldier. I mean, we're talking about a specific generation. He was, by the way, also in, at, at age 20 or so, a fervent Zionist. These, are, these, are men, these were not men of practical affairs. These were philosophers. And this is really extremely important. They held all kinds of views about this, that, or the other. It's, they were not good at practical politics. They didn't understand practical politics. And whatever views they might have had about a political question were just views that some very intelligent men happened to have about a political question. But nothing should be concluded from that about what is pernicious in the line of thought that we would probably agree about more than disagree. Nothing, nothing, they're not a political force. They're not a political party. And they're not that important. So let me just, let me just mention one thing. I mean, this is too long a question to, re to repeat for, for, the, for TV actually, because it was not a question actually. <laughs> um, uh, generally spoken, um, the gentleman meant that Jürgen Habermas has no problem uh, to be perhaps pro-Israel, but he, he didn't see any point to, 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 to address Judith Butler's anti-Zionism, which I think um, is not really um, a good statement because Jürgen Habermas in 2009 could have been well aware of who Judith Butler is and someone like Jürgen Habermas should never ever have 
uh, have joined uh, an event, such a huge event with 1,000 people attending in New York City with Judy Butler, who was very well known at the time. Just remember Lawrence Summers, head of uh, Harvard University, uh, who addressed Judy Butler as early as 2002 uh, and repeated his statement against boycott of Israel, uh, which uh, Butler is endorsing and Harvard should be aware of. So um, this, no, this is no excuse. The event? Because Jürgen Habermas is definitely in the uh, anti -Ameri I mean, he, he was, he's fueled by uh, anti-Americanism since two He is. Uh, That's in, so in, wrong! <laughs> I can't believe how wrong he yeah. is. I mean, just, 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 just listen to what happened in, in Europe in the 2002, 2003 years. Uh, I mean, uh, you mentioned, you, maybe you met Jürgen Habermas, but there are pe people who know Jürgen Habermas maybe a bit closer than you do, like Bassam Tibi, uh, who is a little bit, uh, maybe a few years older than you are. And Bassam Tibi was a scholar of Hogan Madonna and Jürgen Habermas. And Bassam Tibi, who is a really influential scholar and uh, someone I criticize, but I also embrace because he's the leading German uh, Muslim scholar on Islamism and Jihad in the last 40 years uh, and he actually uh, analyzed the shortcomings of Jürgen Habermas which he knew I think maybe better than you do uh, he analyzed the shortcomings of Jürgen Habermas as early as 2002 when Jürgen Habermas was embracing the return of religion obviously aiming at Islam which uh, Habermas after 9-11 was not at all scared rather embracing it and going to Iran the next year uh, so this is so much about Jürgen Habermas, and um, I think I know the writing of Jürgen Habermas quite well. I mean, I wrote an MA thesis on the critical theory uh, 15 years ago, and I dealt with them even before uh, the first time I read the Dialectic of Enlightenment uh, in the original German uh, was uh, when, when I was a teenager. So I know some things of them, although I'm too young to know Leo Lumthal in person, because you are a little bit older than I am. Um, but any more questions? Um, I'm always wondering why people have to make the statement that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism when you yourself have given us a, a wide range of intellectuals who were not Zionist in the sense of wanting a Jewish state, but you would not call them anti-Zionists, you would not call Buber, I mean, you would not call them anti-Semites. So my, my question basically is, uh, is there, are there other nationalisms and other means of self-determination for Jews aside from Zionism? I'll give you one example. Uh, the Bund was in favor of a diaspora nationalism, if you want to call it that. Then uh, you may have some other you may have territorialism, which is a state, but not, not uh, sort of not an independent state, but some sort of state outside of Palestine. So you have two of them there. You have possibly the traditional religious uh, identity of the Hasidim, who obviously are keeping to themselves, and they have their nationalism. So we have three or four different types of nationalism. Why do we have to say that this is the only way, and if you don't go our way, then you're an anti-Semite? I don't understand that. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's an interesting question, and I think it's the other way around. Um, I mean, the question is if there have been several forms of Jewish nationalism, including the Bundes nationalism, that means kind of European nationalism, Jewish European nationalism uh, outside Israel, uh, or the Hasidim uh, kind of nationalism. 
and um, territorialism. 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 And uh, I think it's, that's an interesting question, but um, I think it's kind of the other way around because usually Zionists or Israeli down the queue is all kind of people who are not living in Israel or who are following the Bundes, and they, they can do so. Uh, it's not a problem for them, but people like Judith Butler, as far as I understand, they are going the other way around. They are accusing all people who are not uh, embracing diaspora, exile or so, uh, as being not really following Judaism. I mean, Judith Butler is definitely saying Zionism is not Judaism. And it's not the other way around. So I think you should accuse people like Judith Butler who say that Zionism is not an essential part of Judaism, uh, while Zionists, of course, accept uh, because uh, um, most Jews still don't live in Israel, so uh, and Israelis don't have a real problem with this. I think. I mean, I have some Israeli friends. That, I mean, they they know that they are diaspora Jews. That's not a problem for them. In fact, it's the other way around. That a few. And we are talking about a few people. Uh, even among intellectuals, there are a few like Judith Butler who uh, accuse Zionism to uh, claim that Zionism is part of Judaism, which I think it is, of course. And uh, Zionism is not saying, at least as far as I understand from the sources, uh, that it's, it's the only way of nationalism. Of course not. There are other ways of it, and they, they are accepted. But they are obviously a minority. But they don't go so far and say that this is not part of Judaism. But Judith Butler goes the other way around and says Zionism is not part of Judaism. And I think that is really troubling. Yeah, but, but I think there, there is a point say that Zionism is not Judaism. Zionism was a rebellion against the traditional Jewish life and Jewish thought. So in that sense, they wanted to start over again. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of Zionism was let's start the whole thing over again. With, we have new surnames, we have new names, we have new language, etc. In that sense, she has a point. But, but I don't know if you answered my question about whether we have a right to say that non-Zionism or anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. I think we have to distinguish the two. Uh, I'll just jump in here and then I, I'm getting signals that we have to stop. Okay. <clears throat> if I understand your, your point correctly, what you're trying to say is why are you saying that people who criticize Zionism are automatically anti-Semitic? Is that correct? Yeah, or who don't I, adopt Zionism. Let's put well, it I had that question myself. I mean, what's wrong with criticizing the concept of Zionism? My father, for example, who would definitely defend the right of Israel to exist and he supports Israel, he considers himself an anti-Zionist because he has no, he considers Zionism as a movement that all Jews had to go to Israel and he never had any intention of doing that. That was then and this is now. If you, you can do a very simple little thought game and answer your question. When somebody says, I'm against Zionism, listen to why they're against. If you fit into their, um, their statements, ideas such as Jews are subject to a double standard. In other words, Jews are not allowed to have borders, but I don't know, Americans can have borders. I'm not saying Americans. Somebody else can have borders. British, the British can have borders, because they certainly never signed on to the European open borders. A double standard where Jews are, can, are put against a different standard. If if it is in fact aimed at delegitimizing the state of Israel, which is what most, listen to what people are saying when they're saying they're anti-Zionist. If what they really want is to erase the state of Israel, 
I would consider that anti-Semitic. And it's not just me. The EU and the American State Department went through a process of trying to determine how do you call something anti-Semitic when, when a lot of people say, well, it's just anti-Zionism, like anti, I don't know, anti-capitalism. And they came up with these rules. So I'm not making them up. I think they're practical. I think they're sensible. If behind what somebody's saying is anti-Zionism is the concept of a global conspiracy by Jews to take over the world and Jews as the source of all evil, and from my research on radical Islam, I'm telling you, I'm not making it up, it's common, that's not anti-Zionism. That's something different. So when people elide the two thoughts, um, I think you'll find if you listen to what people are saying when they're saying anti-Zionist things, you yourself can determine whether that's accurate. So thank you all very thank much. Thank you.